Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. After PFAS was found in the milk supply at a dairy farm in Maine, what's next for the chemicals? All the evidence suggests that this is but the tip of a toxic iceberg. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll take a look at PFAS regulations and waste management practices around the region. We'll also hear from a family working to reduce their impact on the environment. We can't turn away from this at all anymore. It needs to be something that is part of the, like, drumbeat of our lives and of what we're doing. Plus, how Vermont's citizen scientists could impact the state for years to come. Can't evaluate how things are trending, how populations are changing without knowing what they used to be. Finally, how efforts to save one butterfly in New Hampshire ended up saving another and the competitive birders of Massachusetts. To win this competition, you need to go to the hard-to-find birds that are usually in hard-to-get-to places, and you need to hope that you can deliver. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Annie Ropeek, in for John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We've talked about PFAS chemicals on the show before. PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. These chemicals were commonly used for decades in all kinds of household and industrial products, especially firefighting foams. They've been found in water and landfills around the country, and they've been linked to serious health effects. The state of New Hampshire announced at the end of May that it's suing the makers of PFAS chemicals for contaminating the state's drinking water. At a press conference, officials announced two lawsuits against companies, among them 3M and DuPont. New Hampshire's Attorney General Gordon McDonald said the goal is to recoup damages for the PFAS contamination that's spread across the state. It is my hope that those responsible for the manufacture and distribution of PFAS will recognize the severity of the issues they've caused and will become part of the solution. New Hampshire is due this month to propose new limits on PFAS in drinking water. But what if drinking water wasn't the only place you could ingest these chemicals? A recent case in Maine found PFAS in the milk supply at a local farm in Arundel. To learn about how the chemicals got into a milk supply and how other states around New England are reacting, we invited Kevin Miller and David McKay to join us. Kevin Miller is a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. Kevin, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Also with us is David McKay, a land use and environmental lawyer for Merrick O'Connell, attorneys at law. David, welcome to Next. Good morning. So let's first hear a clip of Frank Stone. This is from reporting done by Maine Public's Patty White. Beginning in 1980, the towns and the state told us or told Maine farmers that spreading sludge on our fields was the right thing to do. So, Kevin, what's Frank talking about here? What kind of sludge is he referring to? Talking about uh, municipal sludge, this is this is all the wastewater that comes into the local municipal wastewater treatment plant, and then it's taken and treated, and in this case is then uh, distributed to farmers who can use it on their fields as fertilizer. Is this unique to the state of Maine, spreading wastewater sludge on farm fields? No, this is a, this is a national practice. It's fairly common throughout the country, more more common in some states than others, and the way it's regarded is it's it's a beneficial use. 
you know, the, the towns that and the municipal uh, wastewater treatment programs that have the sludge, it's a way for them to get rid of it in a way that's cheaper than sending it to a landfill. And then the farmers benefit from using it as a fertilizer uh, at a much, much reduced cost or free. Yeah, so it's kind of a form of recycling. So the reason we're talking about this is because these PFAS chemicals were found on this farm that's owned by Frank Stone. So Kevin, how were these chemicals found? Well, they were found by the uh, local water uh, district because they have a well on uh, Mr. Stone's property. And they were doing routine uh, sampling and monitoring of, of the water that was coming out of the well. And, and uh, this came up and they flagged it for the farmer. And then they did additional d- investigations to figure, try to figure out where it was coming from. And did they figure out where the chemicals had originally come from? Well, that's that's uh, one of the challenges, you know, in this case, and I think a lot of the other cases. Uh, Mr. Stone had spread this uh, municipal sludge from two different sewer districts on his farm and other farms for years, but he also spread some, some waste from uh, a local paper mill at some point, I think in the 1980s. So although Mr. Stone is, is fairly confident that this came from the municipal sludge, there's, there's disagreement about that. And it hasn't been definitively proven because basically nobody was looking for this, these chemicals and nobody was testing for them back in the day. So that means these chemicals are found in our water supplies, groundwater, drinking water, in landfills and all kinds of places where these uh, chemicals have rubbed off of these materials and gotten kind of stuck in the environment. So these chemicals have turned up in the milk at Stone's Farm. Kevin, what did the state of Maine do after they were found? Well, they started an investigation to try to figure out, first of all, where the contamination was coming from, um, to try to narrow it down. Uh, but uh, Mr. Stone, he reached out. He was the one that contacted the state, but he also contacted his dairy processor that was buying all of his milk. The dairy processor, after the milk was tested, uh, basically had to say, I'm sorry, we, we can't accept this anymore. Um, so this all started back in 20, uh, late 2016, um, early 2017. And it's been an ongoing process where the state went out and did detailed uh, studies of his of his fields and his farm and his drinking water. They've tried to help him get uh, get uh, filters attached to his drinking water. He's gone out and bought uh, feed from other states that that presumably wouldn't be contaminated. But this is an ongoing issue, and and for him, he hasn't been able to to sell pretty much any milk since then. Yeah, so let's hear another clip of Frank Stone talking about that. These cows are our life. It's all we've ever done. It's all we ever know. It's all we've ever wanted to do. So, Kevin, has this basically put his business on hold? From from what uh, Mr. Stone says, it's pretty much ruined his, his business and his family farm. You know, it's been in his, his family for over a century. And, you know, he's dumping 400 and 450 gallons of milk per day that he can no longer sell to to the local dairy processor. So he... He says it's pretty much you know, bankrupted him, and he's not sure you know, what things are going to happen from here. David, can you bring us up to speed on how other states are starting to change laws related to PFAS? Sure. The states are really scrambling, I think, is probably the most honest explanation. Um, most of the toxicology understanding and from an environmental understanding um, is really evolving, um, and you're seeing it. You know, the, the, the farm example is a good one. Um, there's a lot of concern over um, PFAS contamination in public drinking water supplies, and I think that heightened attention is what's really driving um, the development of regulation in, uh, in a number of states. I think there's been 
some criticism that EPA is not moving fast enough. And so what we're seeing is states really trying to jump in and address these issues. But this is, although these, these chemicals have been around for a long time, um, everything else about it is evolving. Everything from the, the testing, the toxicology, to the treatment options when you find this stuff in, in public water sources. And so um, the states have uh, really been scrambling. Yeah, I mean, there are so many unanswered questions as we begin to craft the science and the regulations of this. As you mentioned, EPA doesn't yet have hard regulations on these chemicals, so they're working on that. And it's been so interesting to watch the states go kind of case by case and write their own regulations because they're all a little different. They're picking different chemicals. And it's, it's just such a large problem to begin to untangle. And as part of that, we've also recently seen New Hampshire uh, joining a group of states uh, in filing its own lawsuits against the makers of these chemicals. That's chiefly 3M and DuPont. David, do you expect we're going to begin to see more lawsuits like that spread? Absolutely. I, I think it's hard not to think that you're going to see the litigation follow the uncovering of these problems in, in various places. So as more and more existing sites begin testing for PFAS contamination in soil and groundwater, and as those levels get set uh, and adjusted, that's going to create all kinds of liability questions. And you're just going to, I think you're going to see that spill over as the sort of regulations catch up to the environmental threat and the developing toxicology. It's only natural to expect that the litigation is all going to follow from that. Yeah. And Kevin, back on Frank Stone's farm, we're seeing he's now suing for damages as well, right? Right. He's suing the manufacturers of the chemicals as well as the local wastewater treatment facilities where he obtained the, the sludge. I think his lawsuit is actually ex- expanding um, and they're looking at other potential parties. So it'll be an interesting case to, to follow. And kind of kind of to the point that David's making and you were, you were talking about trying to catch up with, with the regulations. The science is really trying to catch up with things at this point. And the states are doing the same thing. There is a lot of frustration at the state level, both here in Maine and I know across the country, about the uh, the lack of federal regulations. And you know, in the case of milk, you know, we we have a, a federal EPA advisor level seventy parts per trillion for drinking water, but there's there's nothing for milk. So Maine had to go out and try to figure out what would be a potentially safe level and kind of a cutoff level for when milk comes in, where it should no longer be sold. Yeah, I know here in New Hampshire, when I talk to sludge producers and wastewater treatment handlers, they're disputing whether we should even be looking at this problem the same as we do at water. I mean, the milk problem is one thing, but in just applying sludge to soil, they argue that, you know, the way that these chemicals bind to soil and to skin is much different and less toxic than the way they bind to water. And it really depends on what studies you read, whether that's true. And these are the questions that states are really having to answer now. Let's hear Patrick McRoy of the Environmental Health Strategy Center. This is from reporting by Maine Public's Patty White. All the evidence suggests that this is but the tip of a toxic iceberg. David, do you think that's right? Is this just the beginning of the PFAS problem that is going to grow from here? You know, there's, there's a lot to be learned. And as a result of that, I think we can expect that there's going to be a lot of legal consequences from that. And so we're going to see more and more litigation, and uh, I think to expect that this is going to be a growing problem that the federal government, the state, and municipalities are struggling to grapple with is certainly accurate. 
David McKay is a land use and environmental lawyer from Merrick O'Connell Attorneys at Law. David, thanks so much for being here. Happy to do it. And Kevin Miller is a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we'll learn about a 24-hour birding competition. But first, ever despair about the future of our planet? Not just my kids don't have the future that I want for them, but, like, my kids don't have a future. How one family is working to reduce their negative impact on the Earth. That's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Climate change for many is a big, distant, looming threat, but not something to tackle or even think about every day. At least that's what Dr. Elizabeth Pinsky used to think. Then last October, Pinsky clicked open a U.N. report that describes a world racked by drought, flooding and extreme heat by 2040. She began waking in the dark of the night, picturing Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. My children are going to be searching for water in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Not just my kids don't have the future that I want for them, but like my kids don't have a future. In the light of day, Pinsky, a pediatrician and child psychiatrist, gave herself some therapeutic advice. Do something. Now every daily action and decision for Pinsky and her family includes this question. What will help protect the earth? We can't turn away from this at all anymore. It needs to be something that is part of the like drumbeat of our lives and of what we're doing. WBUR's Martha Biebinger met Pinsky outside a tea station one afternoon to see what life looks like with climate change front and center. Dr. Pinsky takes the red line from her office at Mass General to a stop about a half mile from her son Ben's school in Somerville. All right, you want to show off how you can do this kickstand and everything? Ben, who's just turned six, takes off on a purple and white two-wheeler. Some days, if Ben is tired, he and his sister get a ride on the family cargo bike. So there's like this little platform for me to sit on in the booster, and the back is for my sister. Why don't we cross here, Ben, so we have... Home is about 30 minutes on foot. If there's a time crunch or too much snow, Pinsky or her wife will drive. But as much as possible, we're doing it human-powered. On the route home, Pinsky might stop at one of the second-hand stores where she's started buying the family's clothes, books, and toys. Consume less is one of Pinsky's mantras. Waste less is another. So she's found stores where she can refill jars of oil, vinegar, beans, rice, and nuts to avoid plastic packaging. Davis Square is the reason why we're able to do a lot of this stuff. Meaning live Meaning live mostly on our feet, whether it's by bike or walking. All right, you're good to go. As Ben pedals the final yards home, Pinsky wonders if her kind, thoughtful son will feel like he can bring a child into the world. 
Ben will turn 27 in 2040, a tipping point of sorts, as Pinsky understands it, for intensifying heat and drought. And now that we know that it's the very near future, and it's like the bulk of our kids' lives, it just feels very different. For Pinsky as a parent and as a physician. And so if I'm going to say, you know, I'm a doctor, my job is to make children and families physically and emotionally healthier. There is no greater threat than this. Back in October, when Pinsky and her wife read the UN report and decided to make using less carbon a daily priority, they looked online for guidance about how to have the biggest impact. The one nobody likes to talk about is having fewer kids. By one assessment, having one less child has at least four times the impact of living car-free. Some of the other very big ones are limiting the amount of air travel that we do, eating a, ideally a totally plant-based diet, but eating less meat and certain, certainly eating less um, beef. But Pinsky has two reasonably devoted carnivores. I mean, if I told Ben we weren't going to have chicken anymore, it would not go well. In the kitchen, Ben climbs onto a stool, ready to make one of the few new non-meat dishes he and three-year-old Margaret will eat, at least when covered in ketchup, tofu dippers. You have tofu. Ben rolls strips of tofu in oil and drops them in a reusable plastic bag filled with cornmeal. And then, like, swab that stuff out. I know that. After dinner, the tofu dippers Margaret and Ben do not eat will go into a compost bin that gets picked up weekly or down to the worm bin in the basement. Hundreds of red wigglers turn the family's food scraps into fertilizer. They are really stinky. The worms come via a free stuff website where the family gives away as much as it takes. Pinsky's wife, Sarah Cable, summarizes the biggest challenge for their waste less life in one word. Plastic. Cable says thinking about the outcome of every container you buy, every action you take, can be overwhelming. It's hard to keep thinking about that. It's scary. So I think holding that in our minds, I think is a, one of the most important things we do, I think. Cable and Pinsky have learned that they need a break every now and then from that avoid catastrophe mindset. This is U.S. Right. air travel, four tickets round trip. But air travel to Orlando, Florida, home of Disney World, is high on the carbon impact list. The family went anyway last February. So we spent 100 bucks on carbon offsets to sort of try to take that piece of anxiety related to the trip away. Pinsky pauses. Her shoulders drop. God, I just sound insufferable. How do you talk about these things without sounding like a total... I mean, really, how? Pinsky says she knows carbon offsets are a luxury many cannot afford. And she acknowledges that the green electricity she pays extra for, or washing her clothes in cold water, or using dryer balls to reduce drying time, are all irrelevant given the scope of climate change. But she sleeps better now. She's doing something. Working this into our lives and into our decision-making and into the things that we talk to our friends and our family about helps a lot with that feeling of, like, hopelessness and fear. And Pinsky's banking on a ripple effect. One more co-worker who switches from paper cups to reusable mugs. One more person who calls their congressperson or shows up at a rally. One more mom or dad biking with their kids to school and work. It's how Pinsky copes for now. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger.
It's not just families like Pinsky's that are worried about reducing waste. Some New England states are taking matters into their own hands, banning materials that can't be recycled. Maine, for example, recently banned styrofoam. But how much do these bans actually make a dent in the waste produced? And now with China not accepting recycling from the U.S. anymore, what does that mean for the future of waste processing here? We invited Duncan Watson in to tell us more. He's the current president of the Board of Trustees of Northeast Resource Recovery Association and the assistant public works director and solid waste manager for the city of Keene, New Hampshire. Duncan, thanks for being here. Thank you. Nice to be here. So for starters, can you remind our listeners about the policy change that China made? That's what we're talking about. Well, um, you have to go back a few years where China announced a a program where they were going to be putting some regulations on recycling that was coming into China, um, but those regulations weren't really vigorously enforced. And so over the years, some material kept pouring into China of dubious quality uh, until they began to – they announced a program called uh, National Sword at the the last of what was three programs that they initiated. And uh, the National Sword program effectively made it impossible for recyclables to be shipped into China because of the quality control specifications that were necessary to, to allow the product to enter. Uh, there was no way that anybody could meet those specifications. So it effectively cut off recycling from China w- totally. And were they the main country or, or source that was taking these recyclables? By far. Um, you know, uh, upwards of 60 to 70 percent of recycling that was shipped overseas was going to China. This is the kind of recycling that we call single stream, right, where everything's all mixed together. And we've been told for years that that's you know, that that'll be sort of sorted out on the other end? No, not necessarily. I mean, a single stream facility is going to then separate those commodities into into ver- the various components. Um, and those were the products that were ultimately shipped. So they, 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 it wasn't taking single stream and just bundling it together and shipping it to China. They were shipping mixed paper or c- c- plastic containers, things things that had already been separated. But the problem was is that the contamination rates were such that uh, it, it became problematic for China and to the point where they basically had to cut it off. So how has this change that China made affected how we're dealing with recyclables here in this country? Well, it's uh, it's it's basically been a, a bit of a, a curse and a, and a blessing as well. I mean, it, it was a wake-up call and, and an overdue one at that. Um, you know, we should have known better that this this that this was likely going to happen based on our lax standards that we were that we were shipping over to China, and they were their economy was growing, and they were had an insatiable demand for these products, uh, and we got lazy with the with the specifications. So it's it's really important to go back to the quality control aspects of recycling. But in, in right now, uh, we're seeing sort of the perfect storm developing between lack of recycling markets and then also increasingly a lack of disposal capacity, particularly in the New England region, uh, as disposal facilities are closing down, particularly in those ones in Massachusetts. How else has this been affecting consumers more directly? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we've spent, you know, decades now educating the public of that, you know, the recycling has a, has a value proposition. And I would argue that that value proposition stays. Um, what, you know, what do you mean by value proposition? Well, I think that, you know, when you compare, uh, you know, all the environmental externalities, the energy costs, the climate change effects of, of you know, recycling a product versus throwing it away, recycling remains the clear winner. Yes, we are definitely have hit a bump right now. But the, the cost to a community in the long term of turning off a recycling program that they've spent a really long time educating the public on and getting, getting the processes set and then turning that off and effectively turning off the, the consumers that are, that, are, that are producing these products, I think that, you know, that, that a short-term decision of, of deciding to throw everything away is, is a bad investment. 
this is all coming at the same time as more states are starting to talk about bans on certain products like plastic bags and straws, even certain you know plastic cups and things that one might recycle. How does that growing movement kind of tie into this problem? Huh. Well, I mean, you know, certainly every community is going to have its own agenda with regard to bans and, and, and the effectiveness of bans are, are, you know, is, is, is a question mark. I mean, I guess the, the real question is, what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, yes, we, we agree that we, we don't want plastic to get into the marine environment. But, you know, certainly plastic has had, you know, tremendous benefits in terms of reducing the carbon footprint off of other ship, uh, other container methods, lightweighting those containers, reducing breakage and spoilage. Uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not like a, you know, a big fan of plastic either, but I also understand that, that it's a little more complicated than simply banning a material um, because you think it might be mismanaged. I would, I would say that the vast majority uh, of, of plastic containers, for instance, in New Hampshire, are making their way into disposal options that are, are not making their way into the marine environment. But that's not to say that, that we shouldn't be asking questions, serious questions about packaging and its ultimately its, its disposal mechanisms and, and making sure that recycling is part of that discussion and equation. Yeah, it really is all sort of a big system where recycling is taking some of those materials and we have to make sure that they're all being accounted for in some responsible way. Sure. And I, and I do think that, that you know, the, what's nice about the, the, the discussions about the different bands is at least it brings people into a discussion about how we manage our resources. Duncan Watson is the current president of the Board of Trustees of the Northeast Resource Recovery Association and assistant public works director and solid waste manager for the city of Keene, New Hampshire. Duncan, thanks for being here. My pleasure. In addition to plastics, another area where there's a lot of waste is food. Estimates from the EPA say nearly 40 million tons of food are landfilled or incinerated each year. And in Connecticut, food waste is second only to paper in terms of what people toss in the trash. So more than five years ago, a new state law began requiring large businesses to recycle their leftover food. The hope was to divert organic waste from the trash bin while enticing recyclers to build in the state. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, getting that recycling industry started has been a challenge. We're driving through Hartford, maneuvering a 24-foot box truck through the congested asphalt parking lots that city trash dumpsters call home. This is going to be fun today. Alex Williams is the owner and operator of Blue Earth Compost, a six-person business which travels all over Connecticut transporting old food scraps. We pick up a little bit of everything from meat scraps, bones, all the way to veggie scraps, fruit scraps, coffee grounds, bread, saying that we use it if it grows, it goes. Williams backs up, hops out, and gets to work, rolling barrels of leftover food into his truck. Williams says food waste is potentially recycling's next big thing. Keeping food out of landfills reduces harmful methane emissions. It can potentially lower your garbage bill because you're putting less stuff in the bin. And he says it's just a more sustainable way to recycle. The difference with food waste recycling is you're not going to barge your food waste to China to have it composted or something like that. It just doesn't work that way. So it has to be processed locally. Food in Connecticut is recycled two ways. It's turned into compost, but to take in waste, you need a lot of permits. It can also be turned into renewable energy, but right now there's only one place in the state that can do that. 
So to jumpstart the food waste recycling industry, in 2014, Connecticut's legislature enacted a law. It requires businesses producing lots of food waste to recycle it if they're within 20 miles of a facility that's licensed to handle it. Chris Nelson is with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Certainly, I think the law was envisioned as a build it and they will come type of law, where if we put the, the driver there for people to separate their food waste, that the infrastructure would come in. Nelson says the 2014 law produced a flurry of interest. Deep quickly signed off on four permit applications for anaerobic digesters. Those are big food-to-energy plants, which can turn thousands of tons of old food into renewable biogas or electricity. But... Only one facility, Quantum Biopower in Southington, is up and operational at this time. The other three facilities are still working through either some site issues or kind of getting the finances in line for the project. One of those facilities is turning earth. Amy McCray-Kessler is a lawyer and founder at that company. For almost a decade, it's been trying to build an anaerobic digester along the I-8491 corridor, where there are lots of potential customers. The organic diversion law was fantastic in terms of ensuring that organic feedstock would be there, that the state was behind these projects. But she says lawmakers did a bad job at addressing what goes out the door, renewable energy. It's very difficult to sell your renewable electricity for prices that make um, the projects pencil out. And the opportunities in Connecticut are few and far between to do that. Other states like Massachusetts offer deals for organic recyclers. Grants to get projects started, or generous pricing arrangements, which spur investment and make renewable power more competitive with cheap natural gas. Then there's the Connecticut Green Bank, which gave Turning Earth a $4.5 million loan. McCray Kessler says that boosted the confidence of investors worried about how Turning Earth would sell its power. But last session, lawmakers raided the Green Bank's money to plug up the state's budget deficit. They had to rescind our, um, our loan commitment. And um, loss of that has been a significant barrier or obstacle for us to uh, overcome. Um, you know, we're competing for equity and debt dollars um, with projects in other states that are being backed by green banks. Turning Earth says it's now considering selling its biogas to, of all places, California, where she says low-carbon fuel standards could finally make the math work out. Back on the truck in Hartford, Blue Earth's Alex Williams says demand for food waste recycling is there. Homeowners, some public schools, and universities are volunteering to do it. And he says he's grown his company to nearly 400 clients, despite a lack of infrastructure. So our hope is that once the those things start to catch up to what we're doing, that we'll be able to capitalize on the hard work that we've put in so far. And pretty soon, there's going to be more waste up for grabs. Connecticut's diversion standards change next year to require more businesses to divert their food. But will any new companies pop up to recycle it? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Coming up, we'll meet Vermont's citizen scientists and learn about efforts to save a threatened butterfly. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative 
and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. It's been about 20 years since government officials created a special preservation area for New Hampshire's state butterfly, the Carner Blue. Since then, the Carners have rebounded in their pine barrens near the Concord Municipal Airport. Now, scientists are turning their attention to another butterfly in the same area. It's shedding light on the wider effects this kind of habitat preservation can have. The frosted elfin butterfly doesn't look nearly as fancy as its name suggests. It's small, no bigger than a quarter, with mousy brown wings and little black spots. So there are 500 chrysalis in all of these tents. New Hampshire fish and game biologist Heidi Holman reaches into a tent with some butterflies that have recently emerged and delicately lifts a frosted elfin out to show me. Up close to it, you'll see that it has this little dusting, kind of like an icing, on the bottom wing. And that's the frosting that gives it its name. Holman and her team raised these butterflies as caterpillars last year. Biologist Samantha Derenbacher is in charge of the menu. She comes in every day to feed lupin leaves to hundreds of caterpillars and makes a nectar of honey and minerals for the butterflies. you got to prepare their meals daily. <laughs> These scientists say the butterflies are getting the star treatment because they're a living example of how protecting one species can ripple out to help many others. This is the basis of a study for the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service about how to help frosted elfins thrive in the wild. Because elsewhere, across nearly all of these butterflies' range between Texas and the Northeast, scientists still aren't sure how the species is doing. Fish and Wildlife is considering listing it as endangered. But first, they need to know more about how to study and protect it. This is where New Hampshire comes in. Thanks in large part to conservation work for the Carner Blue Butterfly, the state's population of frosted elephants is now thriving and ripe for study. Our contribution to the effort is to get all of the ins and outs figured out, find out where some of its vulnerabilities are, and maybe do some research in the field. It turns out the frosted elephant population has nearly tripled in the pine barrens that were restored to save the Carner Blues over the last 20 years. Holman says it's created an ideal case study, a way to write a blueprint for scientists in other states on how to conserve the elephants, especially where they may be at risk. We make the short drive from the butterfly breeding lab to the pine barrens, where research is picking up on the frosted elephants. Holman and her team have been able to capture hundreds for study in this unlikely setting behind an industrial park, municipal airport, and military base. The pine barrens, it doesn't look like your backyard. It has these really scraggly pine trees with thick bark, and that's the pitch pine tree. And it has these thick, shrubby oaks called scrub oak, and a lot of blueberry and sweet fern in the understory. This is a place for specialists, rare species that subsist off a rare habitat. Holman and her team sweep along the shrubbery with big nets as they walk down the sandy trail, trying to stir up a frosted elephant or even a carner blue. Sometimes, especially the females, they'll hang out in the lupin plant because they're laying their eggs. So you want to hustle them a little bit. But on the day we visited in mid-spring, it was too cold and wet for many butterflies to be out, and the lupins weren't yet in bloom. Another benefit of studying frosted elephants here is to see the effects of climate change on the ecosystem, where periodic wildfires are supposed to keep the sandy soil fertile. Fire helped scientists restore this habitat, but their latest burn was two years ago now. Holman says there's been too much rain ever since. They've been cutting back the plants by hand instead, and it seems to be working so far, but there's plenty more study to do. 
It won't just help scientists understand the frosted elfin. It'll shed light on this whole unique ecosystem and how it's changing. It's like a chain reaction of conservation, all stemming from the Carner Blue Project. We chose one particular species to serve as the model and protected some space and numerous species benefited. Protecting biodiversity and habitat, she says, is always about more than just one creature. New England has lots of different kinds of special habitats that are home to so many different species if you just know where to look. Enter the Mass Audubon Birdathon. Each year, the best birders in Massachusetts participate, and it's not as peaceful as it sounds. In fact, there's intense competition to see who can spot the most different kinds of birds around the state. Billy Baker is with us now to tell us all about the competition. He's a reporter on the Boston Globe's narrative team and the author of the recent article, Bird Nerds Assemble at Mass Audubon's Birdathon. Billy, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So, what exactly is the Mass Audubon Birdathon? So it's a 24-hour competition. There are teams that are organized under each of the Mass Audubon Wildlife Sanctuaries. So each team has up to 50 members on it. And within those 24 hours from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., they have to spot as many different species of birds as they can. And it's complicated. It requires a detailed plan. You have Team members deployed all over the state. They're on boats off the Cape. They're on the mountaintops of the Berkshires. They're out in the middle of the night listening for owls. It's uh, it's an intense event, and it's really boiled down to this rivalry between two different sanctuaries, Drumlin Farm and Moose Hill, and they're both stacked with expert birders, and they both want this title bad. And for the last 13 years, it's been... 11 years in a row, Drumlin Farm won, the last two Moose Hill won, and so this year Drumlin Farm really wanted their title back from Moose Hill. So I followed the Moose Hill team all over the state, and uh, what I saw was extraordinary, just an extraordinary display of talent and knowledge and desire and willingness to go to, you know, cold, strange places and uh, to really try and chase down rarer birds or rarer birds because the thinking is to win this competition you need to find rarer birds everyone's going to see the usual suspects everyone's going to get a pigeon and a seagull and whatever it might be to win this competition you need to go to the hard to find birds that are usually in hard to get to places and you need to hope that you can deliver i can't explain how exciting this seemingly benign competition was to the point where as soon as it was over, I bought my first pair of birding binoculars and a bird guide, and I'm now all in. <laughs> so so how exactly does it work? I mean, as they're looking for these rare birds, you know, what are sort of the rules of play here that they're following? It's entirely on the honor system, so you can see a bird and you can also hear it. If you can identify, identify it by its song, then that counts as well. So everything's the honor system. There's a referee who reviews everything at the end, and they're looking for things that seem implausible and... and or unlikely, and in those cases, they'll they'll investigate. They'll interview the the people who saw it, make sure you know that everything adds up before it gets checked off. But um, it, it's it's hard to explain like how much respect I had for these people because birds are something that are around all of us all the time, and 
in some ways, they're almost background noise. They're part of the scenery. And to actually watch people who are able to pull a single bird note out from a field of birds, it, it was, you know, I describe it in the article. There was this one 17-year-old high school student that was on one of the teams, and he was just this prodigy at identifying bird calls. And he could just pull a single string out of a symphony and just know that that bird makes that call at this time of day. And it was... Um, it was remarkable. So did you stay with Drumlin Farm for this whole 24-hour competition? I did. So Drumlin Farm is a team that had won for 11 straight years. They were kind of the New York Yankees of birding. And then this upstart team from Moose Hill upset them the last two years. So I followed Drumlin Farm, who was desperate to get their title back. And uh, I ping-ponged around the state to the different teams that were in different places and stayed up. Most of the 24 hours, I did kind of get into zombie land sometime in the middle of the night, but I was back out at 4.30 a.m. But the Drumlin Farm team, you know, they, they have so much experience and they were really the pioneers of this detailed plan. And a lot of the other teams in recent years have copied that general idea, which is why Moose Hill was able to defeat them in the last two years. And this year, there are actually three other wildlife sanctuaries Ipswich River, Wellfleet Bay, and the Blue Hills Trailside Museum, there were all, you know, over 218 birds. The winning team had 231 birds. So now, you know, with the rise of skill and also the rise in a skillful plan, what was a two-horse race now appears to be a five-horse race, and next year is going to be even more competitive. What is it about birding that you found that really motivates them to compete like this? I mean, why why is this a sport that one can get so competitive over? So uh, I came to realize there are two types of birders. There's uh, the sort that just wants to go for a walk in the woods and enjoy nature and learn more about how the natural world is working and behaving. And then there are the collector types who want to see as many species of birds as they can. There's a thing called a life list which is a number of different species of birds you've seen in your lifetime. And some birders know that number exactly, and some will say, I have no idea how many different birds I've seen. But this combines both of those, again, some fundraiser. It's for, you know, Mass Audubon to, to continue its programming and education in, in wildlife conservation. But there's something about this one time of year where you pool all this knowledge you have and all the experience each individual birder has and you put it to use. And there's nothing more fun than a silly 24-hour scavenger hunt, which is essentially what this is. You know, you're running around, you have a plan, you need luck, you need to deal with the weather, you need to be monitoring the weather because simple things such as we've had a very rainy spring. So the idea was that a lot of the birds would be behind on their migration. So a bird that might have been you know, the northern part of the state last year might be in the southern part of the state this year. And of course, winning is the most important thing. Do you want to tell us who won the competition this year? So Drumlin Farm took back the title. They uh, they they had given it up to Moose Hill the last two years. It was very close. They recorded 231 species and Moose Hill recorded 229. So two birds. After 24 hours, it came down to two birds. It was that close. That's how tight these teams are, and the skill level was incredible. And I was there 10 days after the competition ended when the results finally came out, and the folks from Drumlin Farm were thrilled. And also, I could see the look on Pam Sauerzell's face as she read the, the results 
a little bit scared because now there are three other teams just behind Moose Hill. So each year, this is a story where they're going to have to step up their game, their knowledge and their plans and go hard at it. Billy Baker is a reporter on the Boston Globe's narrative team and the author of the recent article, Bird Nerds Assemble at Mass Audubon's Birdathon. You can find a link to it at nextnewengland.org. Billy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's been some unusual outdoor activity around Vermont this spring. In Chittenden County, people have been placing bowls of soapy water in fields trying to catch bees. Elsewhere, people armed with clipboards have been counting amphibian egg masses and insect larvae in vernal pools. But it's nothing to be concerned about. It's just the work of volunteer citizen scientists. VPR's Amy Kolbnoise reports. If you've been spending much time outside lately, you might have seen them counting macroinvertebrates in ephemeral vernal pools. Two. You got two? Yeah. Two, three, four, five, six. Whoa, big guy. Walking around right there. Seven. Or trapping bees in bowls of soapy water. Or logging a bird sighting on a cell phone app. Or any number of vaguely strange yet official looking activities. These citizen scientists are helping gather data that environmental scientists rely on to understand our natural world and how it's changing. Hundreds of citizen scientists in Vermont volunteer through the nonprofit Vermont Center for Eco Studies, based in the Upper Valley, and they span out across the state, documenting species from freshwater mussels to mountain-dwelling birds. We could never afford to gather biodiversity data on such a scale with paid biologists. It's a way of gathering um, data over a big geographic area in a very economically efficient way. Susan Hindiger is Associate Director for the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. She says while saving money is a big reason behind starting citizen science projects, there are other reasons too. By training citizen scientists to help us with our work, the individuals who volunteer benefit, they learn, they become even more curious, they become committed conservationists and more knowledgeable. That's kind of the big picture about why VCE does citizen science. Volunteers are part of projects in partnership with state scientists, researchers at the University of Vermont, and others. Karen Bork is Director of Communications at the Center. She says you don't have to have any special credentials to be a citizen scientist. These programs, people can join with absolutely no knowledge, no science background, because we provide the training and direction and inspiration. And there are also volunteers who come to the projects with a wealth of knowledge, like Vernal Pool Monitor John Jose. If you look at the eggs, they have a, a white color to them. That's actually an indication that we've got a lot of unviable embryos that are not going to hatch. Jose is a former member of the Montpelier Conservation Commission and a frequent visitor to the city's vernal pools. He and Callis resident Molly Murray are keeping tabs on a vernal pool in Montpelier's Hubbard Park. That includes counting egg masses laid by wood frogs and checking on their progress and knowing when something might be wrong. And it's also important to know what things look like when everything is right on track. So that's what we should see a lot of, is those tiny, small, dark-colored tadpoles just leaving the eggs, 
feeding on the algae that's on the egg masses and maybe even starting to spread out a little bit. The work Jose and Murray are doing today provides baseline data for future studies. And Susan Hindiger says that's critically important, especially as the climate changes. You can't evaluate how things are trending, how populations are changing without knowing what they used to be. So don't be worried if, in your travels, you see someone conducting citizen science. The work they're doing now could benefit Vermont for years to come. You might even thank them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Amy Kolb-Noyes. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. I'm Annie Ropeek from NHPR in for John Dankosky. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Andrew Perella and Mal Leary. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, and West End Blend. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.